0: Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar, and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest. Josie, welcome to All I Know. Well, thank you. Hi. So glad to have you. I'm going to jump right into our anchor questions and start with the first one. Who are you? What do our listeners need to know about who you are to make the most of today's conversation?
1: My name is Josie Lewis, and I'm an artist. And I've been an artist most of my life, and I'm currently in a moment where I have a lot of social media um, fans, and so it's really shaping the way I make art and the way I think about art and the way I interact with the world as an artist has
0: been quite exciting. Because of social media? Yes, because what of are, social media. What are you altering?
1: Well, I I could maybe like go into the little bit of the story of social media. Like I said, I'd been an artist my whole life and my dad's an artist and I came up being, you know, homeschooled in the woods in northern Minnesota. Um, very free and fun life with horses and wood heat and an outhouse. I'm serious about the outhouse. Awesome. And, uh... <laughs> I love it. And I, I went to college for art and I, you know, kind of made a commitment like, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to do this. And so then I did all the things I regularly made art. I made bodies of work. I was in galleries. I was did exhibitions. I went to grad school and got my MFA as an artist at the university of Minnesota and I was teaching then, teaching artists, and I, you know, was applying for grants and applying for shows and thinking about ways to advance my career. And I'd done that most of my adult life. And then I married a little bit later. I was about 35 when I got, when I met my husband and we got pregnant right away and had a delightful little girl named Gigi and everything was, you know, conventional and normal about my first pregnancy. But then of course I had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Which was like, oh, this is different. Like, wow, this is changing my life quite a lot. You know, we had a pretty conventional, you know, arrangement. Like, my husband had a job and I hung out with the baby and, you know, did art a little bit on the side and tried to keep things going, you know, as an artist. And then the wheels sort of fell off the bus because we decided to go for a second. And, I launched into a period, it was probably a three-year period of multiple pregnancy losses, including a full-term stillbirth. (sighs) And it was brutal. I mean, it was just, it was so hard. There was the, the losses, of course, and then we got pregnant very easily, which was actually... You know, people would say, Well, you're not infertile, you know, like you can get pregnant. And I'm like, Yeah, but then I get morning sick and then they die, you know, <laughs> and then they uh. and then they, you know, then they leave, you know, and then it's horrible and it's it's pretty hard on the body to be pregnant because all of your systems are only trying to care for this new life. And so I had other health issues that were emerging just because it was just so hard and there were bleeding events. I mean, it was, it was the worst. And then of course it was just ongoing, unrelenting grief and fear, (laughs) you know, like because fear, because of course I'd get pregnant and have all this hope and then, uh, you know, ultimately a loss and then questions like, should we try again? I don't know. And then, oh my gosh, it was really, really
0: tricky (laughs) as you can imagine and can your heart take it when you've had it broken that many times? Yes. yes. I mean my gosh.
1: Yeah. And the and the hormones. <laughs> like, yeah.
0: The I, hormones. The I didn't even hormones. account for the hormones. Yeah,
1: the hormones. It's really it's really powerful. In fact, it gave me a lot of compassion for people who have like brain chemistry imbalances and you know struggle with various things because there were things that were happening in my head that I knew were hormonal. I knew it wasn't me per se. You know, it wasn't how I normally function in the world, but I mean, I felt crazy and it was like, oh my gosh, like this is this, this, some people just have some weird imbalance and, they, and there's nothing they can do about it. It's just in there and maybe they can take drugs or, or something, but it's like, that really gave me a lot of compassion for folks. And so we've ultimately decided we we tried one more time and we're like, this is it we're not doing this again. You know, like if this one doesn't take, we are quitting and it didn't take, it was twins. This was was, stillbirth. That was after the stillbirth. So I had a miscarriage before and then Esther, our stillbirth was born almost full turn, you know, not living. And then, uh, and then multiple miscarriages after. And so then the last one was twins that happened. We happened to find out that they weren't, viable the day that Donald Trump got elected. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> it was a it was a rough it was a rough patch. <laughs> not to get political. Yeah. So, congruently, I was raising at this point a very headstrong, he- delightfully healthy and wonderful, but headstrong and a powerfully minded 2-year-old. <laughs> and I was not Feeling it with my art career. You know, I, I, at this point, now devoted 20 years of my life towards being an artist. And I knew I was a creatively minded person, but I was like, maybe this art thing just isn't for me. I didn't feel like I had found my people, you know, like I didn't feel like I had connected with the people that were connecting with me. You know, it was like I, I just didn't have the feedback that I needed to carry on. And so when we decided to not get pregnant anymore, I also was like, and I think I'm going to quit being an artist, you know, like I'm giving up, I'm just going to give up. And I knew I'd end up making other things. It was the career part that I quit, you know, that I was just like, "Ah, this is just too hard. And, you know, it's not working, you know, like 20 years. I mean, you know, I know no artist really ever expects to get rich, you know, (laughs) like, but it was like, not only am I not making any money, but I'm not really feeling like I'm connecting with the group. I didn't really want to be a career teacher you know, that wasn't an interest of mine. So, and really I, lo- I actually love teaching. I just didn't like grading. <laughs> I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to be grading people, you know, and I didn't want to go to committee meetings and, you know, I didn't want to be in the university system. And I just, you know, those things didn't appeal to me. So I was in an incredibly privileged position because my husband had a great job. So I was able to like, just be like, all right, I'm giving this dream up and I'll figure something else out. I'll just be a mom here and recover and but you had time to heal. I had time to heal, Yep, yeah. I had time to heal, and so what ended up happening is, like, super interesting, because I had always liked watercolor painting, but in my fine art career, I had never felt like it was a legitimate medium.
0: What <laughs> like, were you doing in those 20 years? The career was based—was it still painting?
1: That was painting. Yeah. I was focused on painting and I was using oils and I was doing some collage work and I was using resin and I explored a lot of different mediums and watercolor was one that I think there might even be like a gender bias about watercolor. Like it's a, a medium that ladies use to paint on their terrace and, you know, paint kittens and sailboats, you know, like it was <laughs> kind of considered to be cliche or, you know, like not, not a serious endeavor, like bronze pouring, you know, like it was maybe kind of craftsy or something. So it was like a sort of a subversive thing for me to pull out my watercolors. And unlike the last few decades of my career, I, I wasn't doing it to show. I wasn't doing it to support a body of work. I wasn't doing it to support a grant application. I wasn't doing it to sell. I never expected it. was like a journal. You know, it was like, I'm just going to twiddle around with colors and, you know, and just kind of play. And it was also really easy for me to do as a full-time mom with a young kid because it takes, you have some water and a brush and some paper and a little tiny watercolor set. And it's just doesn't take a lot of setup. So I was able to, you know, she was napping or whatever. I could do it. And um, I started uh, really just simply like I'd make um, geometric shapes, like repeating circles or hexagons, and then I'd paint them in. It was like coloring. And what I found, and this was really transformative, what I found was when I would paint these repeating motifs, these patterns, I would Have like an out of body experience. Everything would fall away, you know, like I was no longer in my head, you know. It almost felt like I had had a couple glasses of wine or I don't know, taken some weed or something, you know, it was like it really, (laughs) it really made me feel like out of myself, you know. And so I was real curious about this phenomenon. And uh, I started to do a little bit of research on it or came across some writing, and I found out that I was experiencing something called flow, which is a super annoying word. <laughs> because, Why? Well, because it means so many things to so many people, you mm. know, like go oh, with the flow, being in the flow. It doesn't, it, it, it's really actually a science y concept. And there's like markers that are biochemically happening in your brain. That I wish they had some, like, super science word for it.
0: <laughs> like, instead of just plain old
1: flow. Instead of just plain old flow, because it's too broad. And it's, it's kind of like saying, yeah, I make art. Well, what does that mean? It's like a very uh, general, you know, catch-all. But it, what it is, there is this thing called flow. And there's a book called flow by this um, researcher named Mihaly Mihai who is kind of the, you know, premier researcher in this category. So he he wrote this book, in, I think it was like the 80s, 70s or 80s, where he just documented what flow was and what was happening. And then, of course, many, many researchers have studied it since in literally every field. Like, it's really fascinating, even like the military studies flow. Um, of course, all fields of psychology and psychiatry, medical folks study flow, business folks study flow. I mean, there's so many different applications for it because it's a universal human experience that when used deliberately and correctly expands our ability to grow and get better and have creative ideas. I didn't know all that. What I knew was that I lost track of time I stopped being aware of grinding pain, like physical pain, my grief, you know, like all those things just kind of slipped away. And so I was just painting these hexagons. I get kind of geeked out and I'm fully aware I'm talking to a licensed professional right now and <laughs> I am just an artist. <laughs> I, have, I have never been to school for, you know, neurology but I like reading about it, you know, like the pop stuff. I don't really, I understand like the really academic papers, but one of the things that's fascinating about flow is that in our brain systems, we have the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that is very important for humaning, you know, human adulting type stuff. It's like list generating and master planning and you know, looking at your day and figuring out how to put it together. It has to do with consequences and knowing, you know, like if I do these six actions, then this will happen. And if somebody damages their prefrontal cortex, which of course happens a lot because it's the front of our brains, it's really harmful. You know, like we really, really need. Life-changing. Yeah. It's personality changing. We really, really need the prefrontal cortex. It's really important. But I think most of us just live in our prefrontal cortex all the time. And it's all about this systematizing and, you know, judging and assessing and all that is important, like I say, but I think it's possibly like a human requirement to get out of it (laughs) some of the time. And that's essentially what flow does. So what the researchers have found is when they are monitoring the brain of someone doing a flow activity, they have found that the prefrontal cortex winks out activity stops in the prefrontal cortex. And so one of the things that's in the prefrontal cortex is self-monitoring. So that's like, it's the part of us. That's always like, how do I look? How do I feel? What am I thinking? What do other people think? And man, is it
0: nice to get a break from her? (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally. And your hexagons, your accidental hexagons with watercolor, Kind of turned that on for you. And that impacted how you do social media? Well,
1: so there's a dot, dot, dot here. So I was doing the hexagons and getting into flow and reading about flow. And, you know, the research is just astonishing, especially as it relates to healing, because uh, like they were finding. Um, There was a really interesting study done in California with soldiers who had returned from active combat and were experiencing PTSD. And they had the soldiers surf a couple times a week and get into flow while surfing. And they found that the surfing was helping their symptoms of PTSD more than drugs and talk therapy combined. (laughs) Remarkable. (laughs) Remarkable. Yes. I was listening to a science podcast the other day, the Huberman podcast. It's so good. And here's a little tip for the people. It's a great podcast. It's a Stanford professor and he's, he's just brilliant. But one of the things that he said was the mind can't fix the mind. You need the body to fix the mind. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, he said a lot more about that. He was talking about anxiety, but I think that for me, I needed flow because it's kind of like poking a a sore on your arm. Like you have a cut on your arm and you keep checking it and peeling the scab off and poking. It's like, it's never going to heal if you keep doing that. But if you can stay away from it, it's like, it gets a chance to kind of recover on its own. And so then I think that flow via painting for me, got me into a state of, of healing, you know, where I wasn't super all up in my business, you know, my mind wasn't rationalizing and, you know, doing all the things, you know, so it was really helpful. So because I'm a curious person, I started to film it. <laughs> like I had the little camera and I was like, I wonder what, what this would look like if I put it in a time lapse. So I filmed the process of painting 50 hexagons in watercolor, super low tech, shrunk it into a time lapse. And I don't really didn't know anything about video. So I just kind of, I don't know, clunked around and figured out how to do it. And then uh, I, I posted it to my Instagram where I had know forty followers or something. <laughs> and um, it went viral and got you know, 30,000 views or something. And I was like, that's crazy. That's got to be a fluke. So I posted another video the next day and that got 30 or 40,000 views. So then I started posting a video daily. And now I've been doing that for f- almost five years. Wow. And, <laughs> and then that result is I have, you know, I don't know, three million social media followers on various channels and it's become a whole thing.
0: People are riding your coattails trying to get to flow.
1: I think so. I think that there is a um, there's a shareable nature to flow which is kind of like maybe why we like watching the Olympics. You know, we watch these people who are like deep in flow doing snowboarding or something. And it gives us, you know, awe for sure of their abilities, but also there must be like some sort of transferable thing when we watch somebody at their element. Mm -hmm. The difference with me is that, I was doing something so simple that anybody could do. So not only were people getting into flow by watching the super simple thing, it wasn't like, oh, like, wow, that girl can really paint hexagons. (laughs) You know, it was like, there was something about it that maybe the tactile nature of the process that really engaged people. Like there's some sort of drama that made them watch for a minute. I don't know. But it also issued an invitation. And the invitation was... I've always wanted to paint. I could, wait, Josie paints hex, I could paint hexagons, you know? And I think those are kind of the multi-prongs of how my audience got developed because there are incredible artists who video their process and they do hyper-realism or something, which takes a a tremendous amount of time to learn how to do. I don't
0: even know what that is.
1: Yes. It just means something looks really realistic.
0: Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Hyper
1: real. Hyper okay. Got real. it. Yeah. So somebody who can draw a, you know, a bumblebee and it looks like, Oh my gosh, is it a photo of a bumblebee? And no, it's a drawing, you know, like that's the kind of thing. I mean, I don't do that. I paint shapes. <laughs> I, paint, I paint recurring shapes. <laughs> so the way it's changed my art career is that, well, I I had quit. <laughs> I had, I had full on quit. And then people were like, so in, interested in this method and it's taken a few years to kind of figure out, I don't know if my calling changed or it just became more clear to me because I find it incredibly satisfying that people hear that invitation to find their own creative path me that's really i feel like i'm like an art evangelist like i'm an art flow evangelist just call me billy graham you know like i love it you can paint you can paint you can paint you know and everyone's like i can i can paint you know (laughs) and that's just
0: feels so good to me i think that's part of what's so beautiful about your story josie is the accessibility (laughs) what you stumbled onto is accessible And I think a lot of times what we admire in others feels so out of reach for Mm -hmm. ourselves. Yes. And you have something really unique going here because you're like, you can do it too. Yeah. And people feel like, yeah, I can. I can. I'm going to, and I can. Yes.
1: And kids, a big fan base in the under nines. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of, I hear from a lot of parents, you know, that their kids are like, I want to be just like Josie Lewis, you know, which is. Oh, the cutest. That's adorable. That's
0: adorable. Okay. So uh, I got to ask the second anchor question, which is on the spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary, where would you plot your life?
1: Oh, I mean, off the charts, extraordinary, like (laughs) like, without question. (laughs) I I don't even know how you'd answer that question any differently. Like there's a podcast called how I built this is an NPR podcast where they talk to um, founders of, you know, very successful businesses. And, and at the end of the podcast, the interviewer always asks, is it luck or is it hard work? Which Mm -hmm. is, I think a really, really interesting question. And that's sort of similar to the ordinary versus extraordinary question because my answer to the luck question would be luck. A 99% luck. I am born in a time. I wasn't born a hundred years ago in a, farm in Utah, <laughs> like, um, where I was just having babies and fe- feeding the cows. I, and there was no other option. You know, I was born to parents that cared for me well, you know, and gave me a lot of freedom to be a creative human. And I'm healthy, you know, physically healthy. That's huge. Not everybody gets that. I don't take it for granted. And I'm in this weird golden age of the world where we have this freaking thing called the internet. I mean, it's so weird. It's like, it's this renaissance of, you know, like 500 years ago, we got the written word that everybody could access via the printing press. And then now we have the internet, you know, and we're at the birth of that, which is just like, what an extraordinary time to be alive. It's just shocking. It's shocking to me. I used to teach at the college level. I had a couple like big lecture classes where, you know, I'd have 200 students and 200 people in a room looking at you is a lot of humans, a lot of eyeballs, you know, it's a lot
0: of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. I
1: mean, I actually like public speaking, so it didn't feel like pressure to me, but it did feel like a lot of people, a lot of souls, which it is, you know, 200 people is a a lot of people. But now I can go to Instagram. If we wanted to, press live on Instagram right now to this conversation, I would easily get a thousand people logging in and many thousands watching later, you know? So it's like,
0: or crazy. you don't know, have a, a, and they're everywhere
1: all over the planet. Yeah. It's just shocking to me. Like I had a video, you know, moderately successful video with 130,000 views or something, which for me is just sort of standard. And we were watching a, sports game or something this is before COVID and they were like yeah there's 90,000 people in the stadium and I'm like (laughs) (laughs) I got more than you (laughs) well it was like visualizing if all those people were looking at their phones watching my hands painting a hexagon it's like what (laughs) it's just that is mind-blowing 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 yes how do you define success Josie uh, I like this question too, because I'm, I don't know if you do the Enneagram, but I'm a huge Enneagram addict.
0: Yeah. Love it's it so pretty much. Fascinating. I have a really yes. good girlfriend actually, who's pretty obsessed with Enneagram and she's very fluent in all of the types. I'm more fluent just in my type and I'm even still kind of learning a little bit about it. What are, what are you? I'm a heavy, heavy one.
1: Interesting. So Interesting. Huh. I know a lot of ones. I know a lot of ones. That's fascinating. I'm a three. Now you know another one. I know another one. I know (laughs) another one. (laughs) So you're a three, you said? I'm a three, which is an achiever. And so threes, my phrase is what's next. I tend to be like a pessimist when it goes to like future, you know, if I'm planning a shop update or, you know, like I'm, you know, launching a new product or something, I'm always like, well, it's probably not going to be that successful. And then it usually like blows my mind, you know, var exceeds my expectations, but I don't really dwell in the um, bra of the moment. You know, I, I tend to be like, okay, what's the next product? What's the next thing? I think a lot about that success question, but I've actually shifted the question in my head a little to what do I find pleasurable? And congruently with that, what is nourishing? Because, of course, there's lots of things that are pleasurable that wouldn't be nourishing, like a donut. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's pleasurable, but maybe isn't, you know, or heroin, as a more extreme example. You know, there's lots of things that would be, that would please my body and my mind, but maybe wouldn't be a good idea for me to do. So, like, what are the things that are, like, Nourishing to my soul and really pleasurable. And so my husband and I have this little habit now that, that we try to do at the end of the day where we talk about the things that were pleasurable and nourishing. And it's stuff like the first sip of coffee,
0: mm-hmm.
1: getting into a really hot shower, you know, and feeling that, you know, that the hot water. You know, you did
0: a post about this recently. Yeah. Yeah, I did. You did yeah. A po- I, I'm like, why is this sounding familiar yep. to me? Because you yep. did a post about this piece recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That grounds me in hugging my daughter. It
1: also knowing that I'm an achiever. So I actually want to achieve something interesting to tell my husband at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> you got to be place, able to answer the question.
1: I got to be able to answer the question, which means I have to be aware of those moments, of the things that really do make life living, you know, like finding this little flower, it's spring in Minnesota. And there was a little tiny blue flower that popped up and I grabbed my daughter and there's, I mean, there's nothing, there's not even grass, you know, but this little flower came up and I grabbed my daughter and we went down and just, you know, like, oh, it's a blue flower. You know, it's like, those are the moments that I want to create more of. And I, I you know, success is kind of abstract to me more money, I don't know, more people, more, you know, more numbers, more analytics. That stuff is all fine and good. And of course, I'm completely obsessed with it. That's just like the business or that's the part of what I do. But I don't think I'll be thinking about my viral videos when I'm dying. (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm just going to like go out in a limb.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you kind of did answer the question about what is success. I mean, what I kind of read from what you said is that, having a successful life is actually having one where you can point to things that you say, this is pleasurable and nourishing. Mm -hmm. I had pleasurable, Mm. delightful, connected experiences Mm. that nourished my soul. And that is the marker of success. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the final anchor question is associated with the three events circumstances or themes from your life that you feel have most shaped who you are. And we might've talked about some of these things a little bit already, but if you were going to offer those to us in, in kind of a broad brush stroke, oh my gosh, I've never said that to a painter before.
1: Oh my gosh. You're you're a funny one.
0: (laughs) Uh, I wasn't even trying to be funny. I just kind of had this like, oh my gosh, I said that to a painter. Anyway, if you were going to offer that to us and then maybe we choose one to talk about a little bit more in depth.
1: So the three things, I mean, we already talked quite a bit about like that big transition, you know, of that kind of Phoenix moment of deciding to stop trying to create a baby and also trying to create an art career, you know? And then that being this big transformative thing. And then I think like personality I believe I am a bit weird. (laughs) I I think I'm kind of an odd duck. I think I'm very uh, autotelic, which is a flow term that means I'm wired to really love doing things for their own sake. So that means I certainly love to make art, but I also love to garden and I love to walk. And I just started day trading stocks, which I love. And it's like my hobby. And I love to do, if somebody puts a jigsaw puzzle in front of me, I will get into flow doing it. I love scrubbing out the shower if I can get into flow doing it. You know, I can do literally anything for hours if I can find flow, um, which actually is a bit of a liability because I have to select where I put my time because trading stocks all day especially if I'm losing money it's, it's probably not the best use of my time, so I have to be selective you know about that so I'm highly autotelic and then I'm also i think an atypical artist type because I am creative, I love making things, I love materials I love experimenting I'm comfortable with multiple repetitive failure in all categories <laughs> it, because that's an important part of you know being an artist, but I'm also business minded and analytical and organized and I have structures and I have multiple lists and post-it notes and Excel spreadsheets and all of those things. So I I have two weird things that kind of combine that make me an unusual person, I think. Yeah. It
0: sounds like there is a very structured part of you Mm -hmm. and then a very free part of you and they're both you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's kind of what that Mm -hmm. sounds like. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this transition where you were quitting and going through a huge loss, your interesting personality that has this unique blend. Mm-hmm. And then what would be the third thing?
1: Well, you know, the third thing is maybe, you know, something we haven't touched on at all, which is I have a very, a very strong interest in spirituality. And I came up very conventionally Christian, and my personal views have shifted a little bit since then, as they do when you grow up. But it's a real big part of how I make my decisions and how I think about life. Like, I, I believe in a spiritual reality that's bigger than me. And I sometimes think that flow helps me to get there, you know, helps me to access that that dimension. It's huge and mysterious and unknown and unknowable in a lot of ways, but it is a big part of, you know, who I am and how I think.
0: Can I ask a little bit more about flow, particularly as it relates to spirituality? Cause sure. I feel like my yep. brain just sort of started to go off like popcorn and I'm figuring <laughs> anybody who's listening to this is going to want to ask you a million questions and I want to make sure I ask the right ones. <laughs> So when you talk about getting into flow and that flow is this state where you can get lost in something, be doing it for hours and that inner critic, inner analyzer, inner grown up is just on pause for a while and you are productive, but not in a way where you're even judging your productivity. It's just enjoyment. That's kind of what I'm picturing flow to be like, and that you can even do that with cleaning the shower is what you said, which I'm not sure I could get to flow cleaning the shower, but so you must be a flow master. <laughs> How do you switch your brain into that place? How do you actually do it? And is there any importance in being able to bring yourself back? where your prefrontal cortex is back online or is it okay to just kind of live in flow? I mean, can you talk about the mechanics of that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think about this a lot because there are, I'm not going to remember all of them, but I think there's like eight flow markers. I mean, anybody can search this online to find out what those eight are. Um, But one of the things that Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi talks about and then other researchers that have come after him is that the level of difficulty has to be set exactly right. And so the example is kind of like if the difficulty is too hard. You will be in this like deliberate learning phase, but you can't get into flow because it's just too difficult. If somebody handed me a guitar, I've never played guitar, I would just have to figure out the mechanics of like where to put my hands and how to hold it, and then it would feel really awkward, you know. Or if somebody put me on the top of a mountain and skis, which I've never done before, I would just be like, I'm gonna die,
0: you know, there would be no flow. (laughs) Like, there would be. Yeah. So if you have to concentrate too hard, you're not gonna get there.
1: Yes. So if the difficulty level is just out of reach, you can't, um, you can't get into flow because it's just get frustrated. You know, you just get frustrated because you can't accomplish it. If the difficulty level is set too low, um, say like watching tv or even the cleaning the shower for some people that might the difficulty level is too low a lot of people talk about getting into flow with cooking and that's one for me that just never works like i just can't you know they're like chopping vegetables and i'm like uh like i hate chopping vegetables i can't find it there you know which just goes to say we're all different you know everybody has different mechanisms to get there so if it's too easy watching TV, you know, sometimes I ask people what gets them into flow and they say, oh, watching TV or, you know, reading or something. And I think that there is a flow decoy, you know, it's like kind of like fake flow that can happen while you're just relaxing, you know, but what's happening is your prefrontal cortex might in fact turn off, but other areas of your brain are not getting activated because <laughs> so it's like, you might just be kind of like turning off, but not you know, getting into this relationship with what you're
0: doing. Flow is not a dissociation. No. Flow is not yeah. checking out. No, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just as a
1: side note. <laughs> nice. <laughs> a, a, a kitty's walking across the screen. You guys can't hear it, but it's very cute. A little black tail.
0: <laughs> yep. She had to moon me as she came Yeah. By. She gave you a
1: nice, <laughs> yep, there's my butt. Thanks, mom. Yep. <laughs>
0: Viewing remotely during
1: COVID, exactly yes. So with flow and that prefrontal cortex, um, there's certain kinds of drugs and alcohol and a number of other you know substances can turn off our prefrontal cortex, which you know there's been a lot of talk of how a lot of times very creative people also struggle with addictive issues. Yeah. And I believe that it is the need for flow. Alcohol will get you there, you know. That
0: is fascinating.
1: Isn't it? Yep. So alcohol mimics, you know, if you have a couple of drinks, it will turn out which is why you lose uh, inhibitions when you're drinking and that's because you're shutting down that prefrontal cortex like planning, reasoning, judging thing. I think that's super interesting to me that that's a way to shut down. And obviously it's not without some drawbacks. (laughs) Like, I mean, I I don't, I'm not an addictive person with chemicals, thankfully. So I can have a few drinks and it's okay. And I can enjoy it. But obviously for some people that crosses into real dangerous territory.
0: Well, and what an interesting and curious Process that perhaps some of those folks are reaching for flow and they're not conscious of it. Yes. And if they were conscious that they were reaching for flow, how might that impact their relationship with their addiction? Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I was hoping you were going to give me this really great recipe that was going to get me into flow. But I do have the recipe.
1: Oh. I went off the rails there a little bit because we were talking about difficulty. So, I'm ready. Are you guys ready? I'm giving you the recipe. You have 0% difficulty, which is too easy, you can't get into flow. 100% difficulty, which is too hard, and you can't get into flow. So, I love to ask people, what is the difficulty level that you think people need to get into? And people are like, 80%, 50%. You know, sometimes there's real low ballers that are like 30, you know, 30%. (laughs) Turns out it's four. Four percent. Four percent. Four percent is the Nothing level of takes difficulty. me four <laughs> percent.
0: Everything <laughs> takes me more than four percent. Exactly. How am I going to get
1: there? Four <laughs> percent. So most people are like, I'm going to get into flow. And then they, they assign themselves a very difficult task that requires far too much learning. And we do need it's called, you know, like active work where you're like, okay, I need to learn a new skill. So I'm going to, if you're playing guitar, I need to learn a new chord set or something. And then you have to like really think about it and really practice it. And it's really hard and it's not that enjoyable, but then once you capture it, once you basically write it into your neurons, Then you can get into the 4% where you bake it in. Then that's why we have Leo Kotkes, you know, or like Eric Clapton's of the world who they did deliberate practice. And then they did it over and over and over and over and over again. And it literally creates something called white matter in our brains, which is nerve connective tissue that helps the impulses move faster. So we can build that up. It has mass, which boggles my mind. You can build this white matter in your mind. And it has mass, and you can learn how to do stuff and then learn how to do it faster, and the nerve impulses are faster, and then you get very good at something. So, Eric Clapton for sure is in flow, you know, when he's playing the guitar, but it wasn't always like that. He had to do multiple deliberate practices to get there. But I don't know if there's like an equation for how much deliberate practice you need, but I would say it's 90 10. I don't know of the actual research on this, but I would guess. To really gain mastery, if you're learning something um, like skiing or cooking or gardening or painting, you would need to have 10% deliberate practice where you are taking on something that feels uncomfortable and a little bit challenging and hard and learning the mechanics of it, which would be like, you know, you put me on the bunny slope and then I do the bunny slope a hundred times. And then maybe by the hundredth time, I'd be able to access flow. And then you could bring me up to the next level. You know, nine out of 10 runs would be in the easy category. And then one would be, okay, level up a little bit, you know, like not too much. And then you can live in flow in this 90%, which is super enjoyable and fun. And you're making tiny and incremental changes of getting better. I think most people want to be a master at something, but you can get flow walking. And You're not mastering walking. You're just walking and maybe walking a little bit faster or whatever, changing your cadence or something. And then that's how it creates that little bit of tension of the powerful psychological effects of flow. It's not really about getting better at walking, you know. But if you're trying to learn guitar or violin or painting or writing or whatever, you know, things that you can clearly get better at, you can step up, then you'd want to have that deliberate practice flow continuum.
0: So I started taking ballroom dancing lessons a little over three years ago. And I'm thinking about this concept of flow because, and I think that's part of why I was so thrown off by the percentages, because I love to do it, but it really does feel like a hundred percent deliberate practice. Mm -hmm. But there have been a couple of times where and my my coach talks about this too where it's like as much of the practice as you can do you have done we're not getting in any more practice so now it's about trying to shift into that place of enjoying it and enjoyment mm-hmm. and just having mm-hmm. the experience
1: mm-hmm.
0: and if I'm able to let go and the critic isn't judging every step that I'm taking does that mean that I'm having a moment or an experience of flow? Yes. So flow is intrinsically
1: enjoyable. So I've never been a dancer, but I was boxing, (laughs) which um, I, I would not like competitive. So I was never fighting in a ring with someone. So it was more like I would have a heavy bag and a trainer would tell me what to do. And what I really loved about it was that it would feel like dancing when there was a routine or like a set where you're repeating the same punches over and over again. Sometimes they were very quite complicated, which I imagine dancing must be. So you're, you know, it's a, like a very long, you know, series of pu- different kinds of punches and defensive moves against the bag. And then we would do it 25 times and that would get me there, you know, which is why I liked boxing because I tell my friends, If I can get into flow, I could do it for hours. So please help me get into flow doing something physical (laughs) (laughs) because I need to work out some of the time and I'd really rather not hate every
0: second of it, you know, like. (laughs) So part of it, and I'm just putting these pieces together as we're talking and please check me if I'm wrong. But part of flow actually is repetition where it's not novel. You're not in that learning place anymore. But the degree yeah. of difficulty is 4%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just that- a
1: little, you want to be just a little bit better. You know, so if you've got the foxtrot down, you can bake it into your neurology where you do it without having to think back foot, front foot, side. Because if you have to think about all those things, it's not in there yet. You know, yeah. so you have to be able to like get it in in there. And the only way you can do that is repetition. And then, of course, as we get older, it's much harder to build the white matter. So, you know, kids, they have so much of it all the time, because of course, they're learning all the things, you know, but for older people, it takes a little bit more repetition. And then here's the other thing about the white matter is that we get it in the wrong spots. And I think that probably speaks to addiction too, where we're like, I have pain, I drink, I feel better. So then we build up white matter around that habit. And it never goes away, which is the sort of the sad part of the white matter. It just stays there forever. There's a technical term for it, and it's not in my head right now. I'll have to look it up and send it to you. But We can build white matter on top of old white matter. So if we have habits that aren't right, we can create new habits, and that's why repetition is so important with habit forming, because we're building up this white matter, and then it usurps the old habit. So like if this happens, if somebody is like a golfer and their game isn't that great. And so then they hire a trainer, like an expert and the trainer's like, well, your swing's wrong. And it's like almost impossible to change a swing that somebody has been doing a thousands of times. So then the trainer has, they have to like disrupt the whole process and it's very difficult, you know? So That's part of deliberate practice too. You know, if we learn the wrong things, then we've got to like unlearn it. Well, we never can unlearn it. We have to overlearn it. You know, it's like, we have to build a system on top of it. It's like just the way the brain is built. It doesn't, doesn't go away. You know, I would like to point out at this moment that I am not a neurologist. (laughs) Please. If you're listening to me, I don't know what I'm talking about. Really? (laughs) I just read a lot. (laughs)
0: oh my gosh so funny so if somebody wants to learn to access flow in their own lives here i am back to the recipe you can tell i'm grinding on this because i want to understand and i want to be able to find it for myself yeah so partly it's finding something that could get to a place of enjoyment for you even if it's not enjoyable at first because you're in deliberate learning so much Yeah, initially. So it has to be something enjoyable, repetitive, Mm -hmm. 4% difficulty, and then you can access flow.
1: Yes, and in flow, you need to have instant feedback. So it's very hard to get into flow if you don't have a sense of the ability to affect the thing that you're trying to do. And that you aren't having an immediate response. So then the example of that would be like, I'm not really a a gardener, but um, if I was like planting seeds, I wouldn't really be able to, getting into flow with gardening would be like hoeing, you know, where you can see the rows that you've created or mulching where you can see I mulched this area, things that where you can be like, I'm taking on this task, it's time limited, I will immediately be able to see what I've done. And it's achievable. I can dump this bag of mulch in this area, (laughs) you know, like, and then I can see it and it's satisfying. And then I can do the next section, you know, and then the next section video games are a great example of that too, where it's like the level is just a little bit higher than your current ability. So you're always tested just a little bit to get to that next level, literally in video games.
0: (laughs) Wow. I mean, so maybe that's part of the reason so many kids are just completely wrapped up in their gaming because they're actually accessing flow. Yeah. Yeah. I often, I hear parents
1: talking about how they wish their kids weren't on their video games all the time. And I'm like, I don't know. I think there's worse things that kids could do because what they're doing is they're developing that system. That's like telling them like flow is fun flow is good. I'm getting better at this and I have autonomy. And it's indicating to me too, that that kid is built autotelically, which is they're doing it for the sake of it. They like it. It's not just to get win the next level. It's because they love the process of the game. Video games are set up that way. I think video games are far better than watching TV, you know, just passively watching a show because you're engaging
0: in the material in a way. Yeah. You're giving me something to think about because... I mean this is this is challenging some of my belief systems about gaming and video games and the relationship that youth have to their technology. Mm-hmm. That's maybe good for me to think about. <laughs> you know, I mean well. Um, You said a few minutes ago something about flow and its relationship with your spiritual life.
1: Mm -hmm. This is one of those categories like I have a lot of words for a lot of things, but this is one of the categories that I have experience and not as many words. So I would say that here's a crazy theory that I've got, which may or may not be defendable. But my theory is that the heart of most religions is to find flow. It's like a mystical kind of flow. So you think about like yoga or chanting or meditation or singing or group discussions or um, scripture, prayer beads, uh, praying five times a day or having like these rituals. I think the rituals are a connective device to flow, but it's got more to it because There is this other spiritual dimension that I, you know, I hesitate to put words to. I'm oriented Christian, but I see it in a lot of different permutations, but I believe it. I believe there's a spiritual reality and I believe that somehow we can connect to it. And I think that fundamentalism is prefrontal cortex all the way fundamentalism in any form. You could be a fundamentalist atheist vegan. You know, you could be a fundamentalist activist. You could be a fundamentalist Christian. And that tends to lock you up in dogma and judgment and right and wrong and black and white thinking. And it will not get you into flow. But if you can be a mystic, which is believing there's something bigger, believing you don't know it all, believing you don't have all the answers and being open to hearing or interacting or letting it interact with you. My personal experience is that there's tremendous power there. That's definitely transformed my life in big and small ways.
0: I agree with you 110% on that count. And maybe that's part of the reason I was curious about it when you said that before, because there was something in me that recognized your words, even though I didn't totally understand them. And I think maybe part of uh, my own shifts in my life have been related to flow experiences that have happened on a spiritual level that I did not know had anything to do with flow until right now, this minute. (laughs) I love it. I mean, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah. Okay. Josie. So if you were going to take this, mishmash of conversation that we've had today about art and family and connections and flow and the surprises in your life about how, when you quit your art career, it really exploded in a way that you never would have imagined. If you were going to boil all of that down and, and say, all I know is how would you finish that sentence?
1: All I know is that flow is universal and everybody can experience it today. And you don't need fancy equipment and you don't need training. And in fact, I hear, you know, what you just said, something along the lines I'm going to misquote you, but you said something like, oh, I've been doing flow all this time. I just didn't know it was flow. And I would imagine everybody who is hearing this is like, Oh, yeah, I get into flow when, and it's a human experience that every single human has. And it's transformative, it's healing, it can be spiritual, it can totally change your mood (laughs) to the better, and it can make you a master at whatever it is you're into. So back to my evangelism. (laughs) 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 This is it. This is it, people. Go find your flow.
0: <laughs> yeah. All I know is flow. Right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thank you so much for having this conversation, Josie, and for giving us some time. I think this is going to be a really powerful episode for a lot of people to listen to. I'm so excited to share it with my people. Do you know anything about Inside the Actor's Studio? Are you familiar with that interview show and James Lupton? Mm-mm. So he used to interview actors at his school in California, and he would finish every interview with this kind of bullet-pointed questionnaire. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to go through that with me. All
1: right, all right. We'll try it. We'll try Josie, what's your favorite word? Right
0: now, it's nuance. What's your least favorite word? Content. Content? Content. <laughs> Interesting. I want to peel that apart. What turns you on? Oh, this is such a silly question for you based on our conversation. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Material. Like supplies. Like
1: supplies. But it doesn't have to be art supplies. I get a lot of art supplies from the Home Depot. So, you know, it's like the stuff that makes stuff. That's what I like. What turns you off? Chess. (laughs) <laughs> the game of chess? Well, it's thinking ahead. Like, it's thinking many, many complex systems far in the future. Like, I don't like playing out the way things could go in the future. I'd rather just jump in and see what happens. So, you know, I'm not a good planner.
0: That totally makes sense. What's your favorite curse word? Well, I probably
1: can't say <laughs> I do say WTF in my head a lot. So, <laughs> WTF, <laughs> uh, you know. What sound or noise do you love? My daughter, when she discovers something fun, she goes, Ooh.
0: <laughs> <How> <laughs> it's sweet. my favorite.
1: Yeah. And it's stuff like she sees a rock that she likes,
0: you know, and she's like, Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate?
1: The phone ringing.
0: What profession, other than your own, would you most like to attempt? Okay, here's something funny. I've always, I've always really
1: wanted to be an executive assistant. What? (laughs) (laughs) That is the most boring answer I have ever. (laughs) No, I wanted, it would be like the executive assistant to like someone like Oprah you know, or oh, okay. to someone who is the person that's the, um, oh, I forget the, the title, but like the person that works alongside the president as the master secretary, you know, like the doorkeeper kind of, and um, someone who is like protecting the interests of this big vision. I like that. that
0: yeah. So of. the who you are an executive assistant to really spices it up.
1: I suppose, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, if I was just like working for the Tupperware company and, you know, the CEO i would be like, well, no, no, no. But it has to be someone, yeah, a vision that I believe in, that someone is doing the visionary stuff and then I'm like the bouncer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What profession would you definitely not like to do?
1: Man, that's a tough one because I, I think I'd be great at factory work.
0: There might be a lot of flow in
1: factory work. There's a lot of flow in factory work. I cleaned rooms as a teenager. I loved that. I waited tables for many years. I loved that. I think I would struggle. I mean, I didn't want to be a college professor because of committees and grading. I loved interacting with students and and I loved teaching. I mean, I think I'm kind of wired as a teacher, but I didn't like all the the politics and the logistics and that kind of thing. Oh, homeschool mom. That's what I'm not wired to be. That a hundred percent I know from experience. Because of the last year, probably. Yeah,
0: yes.
1: <laughs> that is a job I do not want. Which, you know, I was homeschooled, but I feel so grateful because it was a great fit for me as a kid. But oh my gosh, as a parent, no. Being the facilitator, <laughs> you're not into. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just a lot of yelling and falling and crying, and it's yeah. <laughs>
0: If heaven exists, and I know we both believe that it does, what would you like to hear God say when you pass through the pearly gates? Something along the lines
1: of, you took
0: the risks. I really like that. I have not considered that for myself before. That's actually really making like. me a little
1: emotional. <laughs> I, I never thought about that one either. But like taking the risks, running through the doors that are open to me. That seems like the
0: thing I'd like to hear. That's beautiful. And it's a good challenge for me in my own life. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and our conversation with Josie. And I hope there's no question that there's just plenty of angles and ideas of things that you can work through and think through and perhaps implement in your own life. We've got flow. We've got neurology. We've got art. (laughs) We've got, oh, incredibly painful losses that no parent should ever have to face. There's so much to dig into and take away from today, Josie, and I appreciate you sharing pieces of yourself with us.
1: I'm pretty sure we got into flow. Really? Yeah. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> I'm so excited. I just got goosebumps. Conversations with a good friend is a great way to get into flow.
0: <sighs> We're just going to leave it right there. Hey, everybody. It's Jen. And I've got to pop in with one more piece of information for you before we close today. Of course, in my conversation with Josie at the end, I was so excited about the, her assessment that we had hit flow that I lost my mind and I completely spaced giving you guys information on how you can follow her work, look at her art, and dive into flow a little bit more if you want to. So best ways to get in touch with Josie are her website, josielewis.com. Lewis is spelled L-E-W-I-S. She's also on four social media platforms, under the same handle, Josie Lewis Art. You can find her on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. And then if you are interested in going a little bit deeper and hearing a little bit more about the concept of flow and how it helped her heal after the trauma of her pregnancy losses, on the About tab of her website, there is a link to a TEDx Minneapolis talk that Josie gave regarding her work and flow and how it helped her heal. It's a great way to spend an hour. It's a big part of how I got introduced to Josie and what she's doing. So if you're so inclined and you're drawn to today's conversation that we had, there's definitely more where that came from. And Josie, this is my public apology to you. I'm so sorry that I got so excited and swept away in what you and I were doing and your assessment that we had hit flow, uh, that I forgot to give you this opportunity. So anyway, listeners, go find Josie. I follow her on Instagram and I'm telling you, every day is like a little moment of zen when I hit Josie in my feed. Okay, friends, see you next time. I wanna thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today... Please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle all I know podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions, and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, it should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention, and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado, and our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma, and we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at Know at inwardboundco.com. I'm going to give that to you one more time. All I Know at I-N-W-A-R-D-B-O-U-N-D-C-O dot And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And the way to find us on the web is to go to alliknow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can.